Hello everybody and welcome to the 10th and final presentation for the UK Society of Evidence-Based Policing. It's been a really good 10 weeks and we've been challenged by a number of police officers and professional researchers who've looked at the evidence of things that are effective uh, from everything in relation to violence through to police officers in the classroom, some really good insights that I think are applicable and applied for our everyday work. My name is Alex Murray. I'm the chair of the Society of Evidence-Based Policing, but I'm also a commander here in the Metropolitan Police, currently in Scotland Yard. My role at the moment is lead for violence. Um, and I've learned a huge amount over the last 10 weeks. I'm also really grateful for the feedback that we've received from members. Um, we've had thousands and thousands of people watching on YouTube the presentations um, and I think it's been really impactive and perhaps uh, the way we're going to go forward. I would just ask um, for feedback, please, uh, for the way we've run these conferences. If you can respond to the email below with things that you think went well, things that we could do to improve, we will have a thorough debrief afterwards and look at how we can uh, do this even more effectively in the future. So we've, of course, saved the best or last. And this is only the second time ever in over 10 years we've had a presentation that isn't actually on a specific crime-based topic, rather it's on data science. So we try and stay away as far as possible in the Society of Evidence-Based Policing from the methods war, you know, hitting one method against another. Instead, we're interested in applied findings that we can make a difference with by adopting or challenging the way we work. However, it's increasingly obvious that data science can tell us so much more about policing than we know so far. And it's also clear that people mean different things to different people when we talk about data science. Um, often, I think consultants can sell us data scientists at extortionate rates, um, sometimes doing some very basic stuff. Sometimes it can feel a bit like snake oil. But in one person, uh, I think we have met our match. And this person is Andreas Barotsis. Uh, I'm going to uh, hand over to him in a second. Andreas is a very rare individual in that he is an operational police inspector with a very varied background in policing, but is also a data scientist by hobby more than anything else, rather than qualification. However, Jeff Barnes, who himself is a data scientist, will say Andreas is one of the most sophisticated data scientists in policing that he has come across. So here we have perhaps that nexus between data science and operational policing. And I thought it'd be really instructive for us as listeners and watchers to hear um, what Andreas has got to say to us around how data science can help us understand policing and how policing helps us understand data science a bit more effectively. So. This will be really useful, I think, for everyday policing, for those people who commission uh, data science, for those people who look at data, for these people who pay consultancies an awful lot of money for, for data science to hopefully uh, show us some insights. So, uh, Andreas, um, very pleased to have you. Andreas works with the Strategic Insight Unit here in the Met that looks at um, sophisticated data analysis to give us insight into everyday policing. Andreas, over to you. Thank you very much. Um, now, I'm definitely not going to live up to that opening, but thank you very much. I'll do my best. So, as Alex said, the title of this talk is The Importance of a Multidisciplinary Approach, How Data Science Helps Us to Understand Policing and How Policing Can Help Us to Understand Data, which in hindsight was far too long a title, and I'm sorry, but I'll try and condense most of the important stuff quite quickly. 
one quick introductory wordy slide, and then I'll get on to the good stuff. So as Alex said, I work for the Mets Strategic Insight Unit. I'm an operational inspector by trade, but we are a small team of police officers, analysts, data scientists, and sort of behavioral change scientists who work on answering the big strategic questions in policing using advanced analytics. Uh, and you know that is a mix of econometrics, data sciences, stuff that is empirical, data-led, and tries to give practical, testable implementations for stuff that actually works to improve public safety. Um, from a personal perspective, as Mr. Murray said, I have a background as sort of, I did economics what feels like a lifetime ago, um, and I did my master's at UCL, and so I have a decent understanding, and I worked in web development before joining the job, so I have a decent understanding in building rough quantitative models and a bit of data sciences, a bit of data science, and it's been a sort of hobby of mine, but it's certainly not something I ever considered I'd do professionally, and I've sort of stumbled into it. Um, and to get I kind of the the last thing to say is I think I've been a big proponent of just evidence-based policy and looking at the evidence and data for a long time. I came to my first SABP conference as a fresh-faced young probationer in 2014. And I kind of think that directs a lot of what I do. And I think this hopefully part of this talk will be showing that you can do some of this stuff without necessarily being a commander in charge of, you know, who can do really big things. And the second bit of useful context I think is worth saying is that I'm a big nerd around tech and finding innovative approaches. I help coordinate a network called Police Rewired. And the reason I say it is because what we essentially do is bring hackers, coders, makers with police officers and say, look, go find a tech solution for this problem, this policing problem, bang them together, even if you don't all understand what they're doing, find a rough, ready, but effective approach to solve problems using technology. And I think that's part of the approach I take and I think is a useful approach to consider when you're approaching stats and not always the approach given in academia, which is worth saying. So there are useful data science and statistical tools out there that you can use to answer really important, difficult policing questions. They won't be perfect, but they don't always have to be. Um, those, not only that, but being able to use operational experience and operational knowledge means you can use those tools more effectively and identify where they can be used better. And I think that's really important. And finally, those tools, though they start simple, are building blocks upon which you build really complex advanced behavioral science, but as I say, data science. So enabling people to use them, I think is really important. And over this talk, I'll start by giving you sort of a key example of some, a couple of quick methods. And then I'll run through some of the findings we've made with those and show you how you can build those up from seemingly simple to really complicated and generating some really crucial insight. Um, oh yes, and finally, if you are a senior police officer who thinks, ah, oh, there can't be many people who want to do this, that is not true. There are people, I, I think there are loads of people out there who, if they were lucky like I was to manage to fall into this job, could do this stuff. So, quick refresher on why this stuff is important, why it's so difficult in policing, and why operational knowledge is important. And I'm quickly going to talk on the unreasonable effectiveness of linear regression. So linear regression is one of those tools that you probably learned once upon a time in statistics, if you've done a statistics class. And some of you here will be saying, stop teaching me to suck eggs. I'm sorry, I will rush through it, I promise. But imagine you are a police officer, you know, a sergeant or an inspector responsible for a certain policing area. You have a certain amount of police officers on certain nights, and you do what policing analysts and police officers have done since time immemorial. 
you make a, you take notes, you record, you record how much crime you had, and you record how many police officers you had. And what you'd ideally like to do, and this is the question that we get in policing all the time, is identify the treatment effect, right? What effect did your extra police officers have in separation to everything else? And we know in policing that is very complicated because what we tend to do is something like this, right? We do a plot. For those of you who can't see, you've got officers on the vertical axis and crime on the horizontal axis. And then you kind of plot them and you have a look. And if you're feeling sophisticated, you can ask Excel to do a simple regression and give you a line and an R squared. And it can suggest something, right? And here it can suggest that there is a negative effect. So when you increase your number of police officers, it looks like for every additional police officer, you get around 0.6 fewer crimes. So win, right? In theory, this suggests things are going well, but we all know that it is more complicated than that because policing is really complicated. And you, in fact, you have other effects which will affect all your parts of that system. So in this occasion, imagine that those extra police officers, they're probably not random. You probably got them because something is happening. And on this occasion, it might be that it's raining. Maybe it's raining, so an event's been cancelled. And because that event's been cancelled, you've got extra police officers. And of course, the rain is also going to affect your crime. So extracting those different systems to identify what effect you have had rather than just other things is the key challenge. Um, and so this is the sort of system you have really horribly graphically represented. I'm so sorry. That down there is the official Facebook villain emoji for those of you who didn't know that was ever a thing. But if essentially you have a system like this, right? You had your policing, you'd like to think your policing influences crime, but the problem is you have a secondary effect that can influence both of those. And the way we traditionally think works fantastically and the way you've probably seen at various SCPP conferences and seen lots of people do is break that link through the power of a randomized control trial, right? And don't get me wrong, if you can do an RCT, go do one. They are fantastic. They give you really clean, useful, externally valid findings. They're great. Um, and what they, one RCT does is by making that random means nothing else can affect it, right? That's what randomness means. It is happening purely out of luck nothing else can possibly be affecting our treatment. And But as we all know, you can't always run an RCT. I remember being a, being a probationer and turning up and thinking, I can't do this stuff. If I go to my sergeant and say, boss, do you mind if we don't patrol the high street next week? It will go down very badly for me. And that was still the fact when I was an inspector. But there are other ways you can do this stuff to try and get a not quite perfect, but extremely useful answer. And regression is one of the one is one of the tools I think everyone should know about because it lets you do this. Those are ice cubes. I'm sorry. It lets you freeze those effects using statistics. It lets you control those other effects. Um, I'm really sorry. I will show some stats. I was going to go through them, and my colleagues got angry at me, so I'm not going to go through it in detail. But the important thing to remember is what regression does is it manages to identify the effect on your outcome variable. So in this case, crime controlling for everything else in your model as best as it can. It can't do it perfectly, and it relies on natural variance to do that. So, you know, if, if crime is always high and police officers are always high, you can't identify it. But if you have lots and lots and lots of days where crime is high and police officers are low and there's lots of variance in there, using clever statistics, regression will identify what impact each of those has when you try and hold everything else steady. So effectively, you can semi-simulate an RCT that degree of randomness using simple regression. And it is one of those tools that you learn, but you learn with loads of caveats and people are really scared of. 
And I'm kind of like, just throw out things and you'll learn really interesting stuff. And I'll show you a few examples now of how I and we have used that and some of the cool findings we've come up with. Um, so practical examples. This here is something I did in 2018 for my master's thesis at UCL uh, with Toby Davies, my supervisor, who was fantastic. And we will get published in the next six months to a year, he says incredibly naively, I promise. But this will look familiar to those of you who paid attention to my worked example, right? We had, I was an inspector in charge of a specific area of London. We had crime and we had some police officers. And thank, interestingly, these policies, these officers were special constables. So volunteers who incredibly nicely volunteer some time of their week to go and do police work, like all their uniformed colleagues, as volunteers. So they would turn up on Friday, Saturdays and help patrol my area which was a nighttime economy focused area. And they were tasked quite precisely. So they'd go to a specific hotspot and they'd stay there most of the night or as best they could. Um, and the good news is because they are specials, the effect is semi-random. It's not totally random, but there is a lot of natural variation. You get some weeks where you have 17 specials and you have some weeks where you have five. And that's what you can see at the bottom graph there. You can see on the vertical axis, you have MSC. So it's the number of specials. And on the horizontal axis, you've got over time. And you can see that every weekend, we tended to have a certain amount of specials and it moved around. Now at the top, you can see crime. And I was fresh out of my quantitative methods class. And I thought, wait a minute, I've got natural variation. I have an effect. Can we identify the effects of those specials? And that's what I tried to do. So first things first, I did what I warned you not to do. Right? I plotted it. I plotted crime and I plotted specials. And it looks like there might be some sort of effect there. Right? It looks like the more specials you have, the fewer crime you had. But again, I just come out of my quantitative methods course. So I spun up, spun up Python, put the data in. Thankfully, it was all semi-anonymous. It was all anonymized because this is an, an area uh, and it's just crime counts. And I did a regression. Don't focus too much on the output on the left. I'll walk you through the key stuff unless you really want to. And please don't criticize my model if you know what you're talking about. I will cry. But essentially, the important thing to notice is when you control for the effect of the weekend and the effect of the weather. So in this case, I got some temperature and rain effects. It looks like you have a statistically significant effect of a negative effect of officer count on crime. So for every additional officer, you can expect negative 0.3 fewer crimes. And that does look to be statistically significant. You can see the p-value there. If it's under 0.05, you'd consider it traditionally significant. So it, it looks like we're having an effect on crime, right? So happy days, what a win. I said that was my master's thesis and I did okay and I was happy and I figured, look, I'm proving that officers are reducing crime. What a win. But <laughs> turns out that's not necessarily true because Saturdays, I'm sorry, there will be some mild memes. Saturdays are a thing. Remember what I said about co-founders? Saturdays affect crime and they affect specials. And if you separate those effects out, turns out that effect is a lot less distinct and potentially it might not exist at all because specials don't come randomly. They turn up on certain days and crime also doesn't happen randomly. It is a time series with a seasonal effect and Saturdays behave differently to Fridays and there is an interaction. And some people would say, look, you've done it wrong. This is why you need an academic, right? If you use complex methods and don't have the right support, you will make mistakes. And that is absolutely true. And I, I don't want the message anybody takes away from this to be go out there blind and play around and figure it out because this stuff is complicated and you should be thinking about it. Sometimes I actually feel like this confused looking dog because it really complicates and you get loads of variables and you end up picking up textbooks and trying to figure out what you've done. But I think the key is that 
because I was a police officer and because I knew that we had specials and because I knew we had crime, I identified an opportunity to do more. And I started with simple tools and then we built on them and we built on them and we built on them. And hopefully, he says, we found something quite cool at the end. Um, and the tools we used are really, really cheap. You, trust me, you can get this. Just go on to, you know, you can spin up cloud notebooks and play with this stuff. You can do it at home. Some A lot of police forces are now getting this stuff because they are free. <laughs> it's good stuff. I get a lot of criticism when I talk about this stuff that like people say, well, that's not real data science. That's just statistics, right? And you will get people would go, oh, regressions. That's that's not data science. That's a lie. I've heard about regression before. I thought regression was deep learning and neural networks and all this fancy stuff. And that I partly felt that way when I started this and I spent six months going, oh, I'm not a data scientist. I just do regression models. But then you talk to actual data scientists and like consultancies and places like that. And it's an ongoing joke that, you know, people will pitch you these big neural network fancy things, but simple linear models, when you actually want to implement them to identify things, are actually really effective. And I've picked a few memes out from the internet here because I kind of want to show that it's a bit of a, a joke that, yeah, linear models tweaked properly, designed properly, are actually really effective. And especially for these sort of tools, you can't, you can do it a good job and you should start with them. Uh, and there's a great talk here by Winston D. Warmerden at PyData, which is a PyData conference. It sounds really technical, but if you are at all interested in this and like a bit of code, go watch it because he does a fantastic job of showing how by tweaking simple linear methods, you can actually do really cool effective forecasting. So if you're interested, go read it. It kind of blew my mind. But the other thing I want to say is those building blocks are really crucial. And this is the model we ended up with for those for that that officer series I showed you earlier. So this here is when you include for the account of time series and seasonality and all those other variables. This is a Cerimax model. So it's a time series model that takes into account seasonality and external variables that took a lot of time and hassle to fit, but fits our data a lot better. And you can then use that stuff to use it on a test set and test whether it works. And it does work quite well. And this here absolutely is data science. If you go to the big data science consultancies and go, look, I want to forecast my sales for the next six months, the sort of stuff that people are now starting to buy, they will build something that is not too dissimilar to this, and it will work pretty well. But we have really, this is just building on the building blocks we've got earlier. And the thing I think is really cool is that when you compare the findings you get from one of these really complex models to our simple linear model I showed you earlier, but tweak slightly. So if you tweak that linear model to include the impact of Saturdays versus not Saturdays, the results you get really aren't that dissimilar. So for instance, you can see at the bottom there, the p-value. So remember again, if the p-value is really low, it suggests there is a statistically significant effect. So you can see here, it looks like we might be having an effect on robbery and sexual offenses when you increase officer numbers, but not on, for instance, TNO, so all offenses, drug offenses, theft or violence. But in, and the effect changes slightly if you look at the simple linear model or the fancy seasonal one. But it doesn't change nearly as much as I thought it would when I started this. I thought it would be a radically different thing. It would turn out something totally different. And no, not really. It kind of suggests that generally, when you have extra police officers, they find slightly more robberies and they find slightly more sexual offences. And again, that is the that is the risk with looking at police recorded crime. And in hindsight, I should probably have thought a bit more about that. But I think this is still quite an interesting finding. And I think it's a finding that shows that how using simple models and building those up to more complex models 
you can find really interesting stuff and you can test whether it works. Because here I have shown that, although it doesn't look like we're reducing police recorded crime, our officers are having an impact. And I think that's probably, you know, that's a good thing to know. Um, but yeah, more importantly, I think the key takeaway is that simple OLS model tweaked with a bit of operational knowledge, as long as you include all your co-founders, and that is key, you need to make sure that you've included those co-founders, can lead to real useful operational insights about how much impact your policing is having. And this is a meme I've stolen from a book that I referenced at the end. A lot of data scientists will go, ah, oh, again, linear regression, too fans, too complex, too simple, don't do it. But with a bit of knowledge and a bit of tweaking and learning from the ground up, it's actually really effective. So go play with it if you at all care about this stuff. Now, um, hopefully that was a useful start, but I'm sure you want the more interesting, cool stuff. So I'm going to talk about a bit of SIU work. Uh, and this is work I did with a team. So it's credit is shared with the rest of my team and Jeff, who did a lot of the nicer graphs and you'll tell because they're far nicer than mine. So last year we were asked to examine use of force and why it had gone up so much. So use of force had gone up an awful lot. Recorded use of force. So every time a police officer uses force, so it'd be that handcuff or wrestling or taser or anything else, they record one record for every time they used force on one specific person. And it looked like our use of force had gone up an awful lot in a specific period. And that's the graph you can see here. And sure enough, between sort of mid 2018 to early 2019, you can see a quite rapid increase between use of force um, and which, you know, seems on the surface to be quite worrying. Um, but one thing I find really useful about having operational experience is that you know how these records are generated. You understand how the data is generated and that data is really clean. How data is recorded and when it is and isn't recorded is a crucial part of data science. You need to know that stuff so you can build something useful and so you can turn your findings into things that matter. And so first thing we did was look at what those use of force records were and how they changed over time. And a, use of, a single use of force record can include any number of tactics. So for instance, if a police officer goes, handcuffs someone, has a bit of a fight, wrestles them and then tases them, that'll be one use of force record, but with multiple tactics. But of, the, of our use of force records, consistently, 50% of them were only handcuffs. No, no, 50%, sorry, it's about a little bit under 50%, but nearly 50%, I think it's just about over 50%, were only handcuff use. A police officer does nothing but handcuff someone and then move on, which I think is important um, for reasons I will disclose later. The second thing is we looked at how many of those use of force records led to an arrest. So there is an outcome of the use of force. And you can go look at this stuff, by the way, the use of force data is public. None of this stuff is using sneaky met data. If you want to, it's a fantastic exercise, go download it and do it. But you can see that about 80% of use of force records now, e.g. from 2019 onwards, lead to an arrest. And there is a sharp change in there. Well, I say sharp, there was a pretty rapid change in there around the same period we saw that increase, right? And this starts to lead, this starts to answer some questions, right? What happened there? What led to that change in, Effectively, it looks like the way we record force changed a little bit, but we know certain things about it. And based on that, we can make some assumptions. So we know that, so this graph here charts all use of force on the blue line, which is use of force over time going from 2017 until about mid 2020. And a second is a second data set we obtained, which is the number of arrests that get taken, a number of arrests around all of the MPS per day where the officer states they are using handcuffs on the custody record. And we would expect these things to correspond at least in part, because we know that the majority of use of force records end in arrest. And we know that these are certain amount of arrests with handcuffs. 
So this suggests, and this is the benefit of operational experience, that compliance and use of force recording was key in changing it. That something happened during that period that led to compliance improving a lot. And in a way, it's not that surprising. Use of force record recording wasn't actually mandatory until a certain point in this process. It was a, it's still an experimental home office function. Of course, compliance improved. But having that operational knowledge and being able to talk to police officers about how you record that data and, comp and combine that with a large data set you can extract and visualize is key. And not only that, you can then use simple statistical methods to try and identify effect. So hopefully you remember linear regression, right? And this kind of visualizes, I know it looks a bit mad and economist, but for those of you who don't know, it kind of visualizes in my brain the way I figured use of force recording was happening and that you had use of force and it was a factor of arrests with handcuffs before that transition, so before that compliance boost happened and afterwards. And those were two separate things, right? Effectively, that relationship was broken from point A to point B. And for those of you, you know, if you remember the linear regression model I showed you, this is not a dissimilar model to that. And you can use linear regression to test exactly that. And that's what I kind of did. I didn't end up going into the report, but what you've eventually done, we can test whether there is an interaction between our variable of that point in time and the, inter and the relationship between use of force recording and arrest with handcuffs. And that is exactly what we find. So see, if you see here, you have the, the, the predicted outcome of my linear regression model, and you can see how it shifts sharply in 2018. And it turns out in 2018, at that point in time around October, MPS policy changed to require a use of force record when you recorded a prisoner in custody. And not surprisingly, you can see and you can quantify using linear regression how much that changed our use of force recording. And I think that is a really useful finding because it shows you how by using a bit of linear regression, some simple statistical models, and a bit of operational knowledge around how this data is actually done, you can quantify what would otherwise be a bit of intuition and actually say there is a statistically significant effect at this point. And this is kind of quite a regression discontinuity, which is a model that, that economists would use. It's not really regression discontinuity. You know, if I was to send this to applied econometrics journal, they'd get quite grumpy at me and say, look, you need to account for fluctuations and, and that you need to there's a lot of extra things you need to do. But I kind of want to put the fact out that, that using a bit of intuition and some simple models, you can make quite interesting findings. And again, it looks like there's some compliance drag over there, but I think it's worth knowing that using simple tools, you can do cool stuff. Um, and one last finding before I leave you to it. Um, so we've discussed how regression can help you identify effects over for various patrol stuff. I've shown you how you can use it to turn intuition into a quantifiable, identifiable effect. But what if you want to do something bigger? What if, And what if you've got a specific outcome, right? We want to know whether something happened or didn't and identify effect there. And regression can also do that, right? So there is a variance on regression called logistic regression, and there are also a bunch of other ones, but it's the one I quite like using because it's the one I was taught in Econometrics 101 a decade ago. And one thing we wanted to look at was whether we could identify what factors seem to lead to a taser being used in use of force interactions. So we know that we had a certain amount of use of force interactions. And again, this is something you can do yourself on the public use of force data. I think we had about 100,000 interactions where a police officer had a taser and did some force. And on some of those, they decided to use their taser and that includes red dotting or drawing or anything else. And on some of those, they didn't. And could we build a regression model that when you included all those other covariates, identified which factors seem to be associated with taser use. And that's exactly what we did. 
And we ended up identifying some quite interesting findings, I think. And I'll quickly run you through the highest predictors of a taser being used in a use of force interaction. Um, so these are what we call odds ratios. So this identifies how the odds of a taser being used changes when that factor is present. So when the suspect is identified as having a weapon, the odds of a taser being used increase by about 5.3 times, which is huge, right? That that is incredible. That is a very large effect, and that kind of makes sense. Again, intuitively, we all know that operationally, right? Tasers get sent to people when they have violence and weapons, and they use them when they have to. But this lets us quantify that intuition. And interestingly, it also highlights things like there are certain effects where tasers seem to be less likely to be used. So, for instance, if the subject is under the influence of alcohol, or if they're drunk they're less likely to get tasered. There are other effects as well. Different weapon effects seem to have different type of effects. So for instance, bladed weapons seem to be the most likely to lead to a taser discharge. And the identity resistance of the subject as described, so whether they're going from verbally resistant to passive to all the way to serious, there is an escalating sort of scale. So the more resistant the subject is, the more they're fighting. It looks like the more likely a taser is likely to be used going up to 4.4 times. And remember, these these things could theoretically combine, right? So if you have a subject who is seriously aggravated, and you know the, the, these are all hauling everything else constant, that is the important thing to remember. Uh, the an officer who is single crewed is more likely to use Kaiser. Again, operationally, we'd expect that, but it's nice to quantify it. And finally, the age of the suspect will impact it. So subjects that are especially old or especially young will be least likely to be tasered. And the ethnicity of the subjects does not seem to have a particularly large, particularly significant effect. It seems, if anything, to have a slightly negative effect. Um, now, the one thing I would say on this is, again, you have to understand how your data is generated, and this is not an RCT. I would be wary of anybody taking these results and saying, we are we are 100% confident that this is all, you know, this is, we can say this with 100% truth. There are issues with this data. We've identified that earlier. We know some bits are recorded and some aren't. And this isn't an RCT. This relies on statistical trickery and, and some natural variance that occurs to try and identify a specific effect hauling everything else constant. So for instance, my regression model tried to, tried to effectively quantify the effect of all these things. And in theory, I could tell you how likely if a police officer encountered a 65-year-old, very aggressive person who was drunk and under the influence of drugs and had a knife and a taser, how, li how likely they would be to be tasered. You probably shouldn't do that because that is probably taking the model too far. But by using simple models, by using operational knowledge, by using existing data sets, it lets you understand the nuance of your data and lets you understand potentially start answering those really complicated questions about what is driving even binary interactions. And we could not do that without A, knowing our data sets, B, knowing policing, and combining the two together and understanding how they interact. So I think that's quite a powerful tool and a useful finding that is enabled and multiplied by, and multiplied by operational experience. Even if, and I think it's still true, there are lots of really difficult questions here. And that's, again, why I say make sure you work with an academic who gets this stuff. If you don't work with them, then QA it. I found academics so helpful when you just email them your code and say, hi, I really love the work you've done. Would you mind chatting about this stuff to me and seeing whether the stuff I've done has been useful? There are a whole list of people I should thank. And if you are alone, do that. Reach out. It's so powerful. You could spend years and years and years studying aggression. And the kinematics classes do, right? They would spend all, they would spend so long talking about the 
underlying assumptions and whether your model is blue and whether your residuals are distributed. And those are all important. But start small, start playing, start learning, and you will find it hugely impactive and it will let you identify things that you wouldn't otherwise. Don't let fear of perfection stop you learning stuff. Uh, and I'm going to quickly discuss one technique before I wrap up. So a lot of people will still be saying, I'm sure there's definitely someone in the world going, well, I don't know if this is data science, right? This isn't data science. This is just statistics. This is just regression models, to which I get very angry. That's the phase I do. Because it is, again, like, uh, uh, trust me, when data scientists come, they will partly be using some of these models. You pick the model based on the output. You test it. Use operational knowledge. This is exactly how data science works. But sometimes it is true that it's worth using machine learning-focused methods versus just regular sort of statistical or frequentist methods or something like that. And I quickly want to touch on one that I find useful as a sort of secondary tool quite often. And that is random forests, right? And this is a terrible meme in hindsight. But sometimes you have too much data for regression. Sometimes your regression model, regression models are not designed to have hundreds of variables. If you do that, things will start happening that will behave weirdly. And in big data sets, you will, right? In our use of force data set, we accounted for things like officer length of service, and we accounted for uh, how the ethnicity and subject and all sorts of weird and wonderful things. And sometimes you put all those in a model, things will break which is where random forests are actually really cool. Uh, and I, I don't worry, I realize I'm running out of time, so I'm not going to spend 20 minutes telling you about random forests, but I will spend five minutes telling you about how they are useful. tool you should start thinking about early on because of how powerful they are and how intuitively cool they are. So you've all probably, at some point, done a sort of choose-your-own-adventure, and maybe that's just me being really nerdy, but hopefully you have, you know, you are, face it, you, are, you know those books you had back in the day, you are an adventurer, go to the forest in page three or go to the castle on page nine, he says. And fundamentally, that is a decision tree, right? We can all pick those up in our head and you can kind of go down a tree and you can go down multiple trees. Um, and you can use those to make decisions. And we kind of do, you know, every single time you have a decision framework in placing, so, you know, ask all these questions and then based on these questions, trying to make an assessment, you are using a decision tree. And one decision tree can be quite powerful if your data is quite predictable. But the cool thing about machine learning and random forest is combining those decision trees. And that's what random forest does. It takes your data, it tries to test it on those trees. So it will build hundreds upon hundreds of decision trees based on hundreds and hundreds of chunks of your data, and then essentially make a massive vote. And using all those votes, weigh them and come up with a prediction. And you can then use those predictions to test quite well. Now, again, this is getting into the machine learning space. You need to be careful with these tools. You need to test them. Make sure you're not overfitting. Machine learning, random forest can sometimes overfit. So, you know, again, thinking back to that example I referred to earlier, where if you have one specific example in your data which doesn't quite behave like everything else, you should be aware of those things. But it is really, really cool because it lets you test your data. It lets you test your findings from other findings really well, I think. People always think of random forests in terms of making predictions, and they are cool for those. But they will also call for testing what happens in my model, which I know is accurate because I've tested it, if I say, for instance, shift where an event happens or shift what time it was. So you remember we discussed the regression model we built to predict where the taser would happen. I then replicated that process using random voice. So saying, build me a model that tries to predict whether or not a taser will be used. And we tested that on operational data. And it performed OK, not fantastically. You know, At the end of the day, tasers are quite rare, so difficult, but certainly far better than random luck and certainly 
better than the better than the regression model. And so we can then use that to do a little bit of answering those important strategic questions. Um, and this here is a partial de uh, partial dependency plot, which is exactly what I said earlier. So, right, so it says, try you've got your machine learning model, make a prediction, and then vary one thing in that prediction and tells me how it happens, or vary two things, or vary three things, and plot the predicted outcome over time of your model. So here, for instance, you can see the likelihood of a of a use of force interaction resulting in a taser being used, how it fluctuates by hour of day. So that's on the uh, horizontal axis and the likelihood of that taser on the, on the vertical axis. And you can see I've picked three different burrows on the different colors. So you have Lambeth, which is uh, sort of a very, very busy, slightly, well, I'd say inner slash outer London borough. Then you have Westminster, which is peak West End borough. And then you have Kingston. And you can see how the profile of the use of force changes and how the likelihood of a taser being used changes over time and how different things fluctuate. Um, and again, this should be you should be careful with these findings. You shouldn't use them to go and declare that you've radically redefined everything. You have been confident on this stuff is scary and worrying, and you should be careful with it because there are all sorts of caveats that you should use and think about. But I think tools like this are really useful to quality assure other findings. So for instance, we built once you've got your random forest model, you can say if a subject has a knife, does it impact whether they are likely to be tasered? It does. And you can test other things. And you can test which features are most important. And you can test how those things fluctuate over time. And it can let you model very, very granular, non-linear model, non-linear relationships. So you know, if you can see, for instance, here, your likelihood of taser goes up and then goes down and changes over time. And doing that with a linear model is a little bit complicated. But doing that with machine learning and random forests, as you can see, actually not surprisingly useful. Um, and using that, we could quality assure our taser findings and be more confident than, and be able to make sure we were more confident with our findings than we were before we could do this sort of thing. So yeah, Random Forest, also very cool. A little bit powerful and a little bit scary. And when you first hear about them, they feel like something distant, but actually quite intuitive, actually useful to build upon as a tool, and actually a useful way of validating other efforts and extracting a little bit of inference. Although again, there are lots of caveats. So hopefully that kind of brings it all together. Hopefully you found that useful. My last takeaway again would be doing inference through statistics does not need to be perfect. You are not submitting journal articles to apply to kinemetrics. We are we evidence-based policing is a relatively young field in a lot of ways. It's a young field that doesn't have the volume or expertise, but we need to. We need to bring it together. We need to bring together that operational knowledge and that ability to extract and identify causality and data. There are lots of people out there who want to do it. I'm constantly talking to cops who go like, oh, I did this a lifetime ago. I'd love to do the job you do. And I'm very aware that I've gotten incredibly lucky to have a combination of interactions that have meant it possible. Yeah, we. I think this is useful. And hopefully if you're a senior cop, you think this is useful too. And you think we should be doing more of this. And the tools are cheap. You know, I, I've been... It's when you talk to a lot of people in the policing world, they go, oh, I don't know. It's really complicated. You know, you need to buy fancy products. You don't. This stuff is really, this stuff is free. R and Python are the two main data science languages. They are open source. They are free. Yes, there are obviously complicated questions around how you let people run it because you need to be careful on how you give people data, but the tools are free. And I think there are real force multipliers here in enabling this knowledge to spread and just making it a little bit more common. Um, and I think 
that is it for me. I've got a few thanks. Those three books are really, really good. If you want them, go read them. I find them really approachable. Toby and Jeff have both been fantastic supervisors, and I owe them an awful lot for this. Uh, I think that is it for me. Hopefully that made sense. Uh, Andreas, thank you very much. Well, I'm really interested in people's response to that. Um, and I'd like to have a bit of a discussion with Andreas. Uh, incredibly eloquently put across, Andreas, very sensibly put across. And thank you. I just want to I just want to add some of my own comments, really. So someone defined integrity, he was called Dr. Henry Cloud actually, as having the courage to meet the demands of reality. So what is actually going on out there? And I think evidence-based policing tries to do the same. What is the truth of what is going on and the impact? Now, we can have an opinion. People out there can have an opinion. It can be ideological, it can be subjective. The point I think Andreas is making is that data science gets us closer to the truth. And things like a regression are really important in understanding the relationship between variables, inputs and outputs. And it's important for me as a police officer and for any police officer here, to understand what a regression is. None of us may be able to do what Andreas does, but if we can understand that a regression exists and what it does, it gets us the chance to get closer to having the courage to meeting the demands of reality. It gets us closer to the truth. So rather than reacting to speculation, ideology, subjective opinion, because uh, doing that is dangerous, instead we respond to as close as we can get to the truth. And the point is Andreas has made is a regression is a tool that does that. So. Police officers need to know what a regression is. Uh, and it's unfashionable to say that. Most people roll their eyes and go, I don't know, a regression. Um, then we need to know people like Andreas. Uh, and there's a call out here to anyone who is a police analyst. Um, I think the ability to engage in basic regressions is essential to have in your toolbox. And if that's an area for development for you, then look at it. Because I think police leaders should be responding and realising the benefit of decent police analysis, and this is an essential tool. The, the second point uh, I wanted to amplify that Andreas made is that this doesn't have to be very expensive, and I caution against the snake oil that a lot of public sector, not just policing, can be sold by people who then engage in what is using statistical techniques, free software, and calling it something like machine learning or artificial intelligence. Um, a lot of money is spent by a lot of people on that. And in actual fact, um, someone like Andreas or a good police analyst could do it. Um, and we actually need to be sophisticated in relation to how we recruit people into policing who can do it. So rather than worrying about a 90% increase in use of force and having a training program everywhere to reduce the use of force, instead we use a linear regression that highlights in actual fact the causal factor for that change was a change in policy that came in at a particular point. It can be explained and we don't have to spend money unnecessarily. We still might want to reduce use of force. That's a good thing. So um, I think that's been really instructive for us um, in policing. And I hope lots and lots of people watch this because um, understanding what you've spoken about, Andreas, is really important. So there's a couple of questions that have come up. Um, one from Brazil, uh, which software are you currently using for analysis? R, question mark? I think you answered that so question. I, was that you, was that me? Uh, I work primarily in 
Python, um, which just because that's my, I did some programming once upon a time. And so I've sort of got knowledge that I can use. I know enough R to get by and sometimes R is useful. I'll be honest, pick the one you want, pick the one that you have learning resources that are useful. They are both fantastic. Find a problem, learn enough to start tackling it and then learn as you go along and you'll figure it out. And they all do kind of the same thing. Um, yeah, my some of, some of us work in R, I work in Python, I work in R if I have to. I quite like that Python is a programming language first, and that means there are lots of free tutorials and stuff, which is fantastic. And R, in my experience, while really useful for uh, some very specific methods, so for instance, so things like propensity matching or things like spatial, fancy spatial techniques, R will have because you've got lots of academics doing it. But Python, if you want to do simple stuff, sometimes it's delightful. And then you can build a cool web app, and it can all be in Python, and that makes me so happy. Um, but yeah, pick one. They're both the same. They're both cool things. Yeah, it doesn't really matter. Thanks. And then perhaps I can ask a question, and I sort of I'm concerned here because I'm going to betray my ignorance here. So I get what a regression is, and, and um, I get what a multiple regression is. And in that, you feed in lots of characteristics or variables when you try and understand the impact of that variable and the outcome data. Obviously, often a crime rate, but it could be anything. Um, Sometimes though, there's thousands and thousands of variables that we couldn't possibly put in. Um, and in actual fact, a machine can begin to test all of those many variables and can come up with some interesting insights that we would have never forecast and put into a regression ourselves. And, it, um, and that feels like the machine is learning for us. And if I can just reflect on the data lab in the West Mids that did some very interesting analysis on who created what characteristic of an individual created whether someone was a recruiter of young people into crime because if you can target the recruiters you can prevent crime um, and it looked at 1200 different variables and the number one variable about whether someone was going to be a recruiter of criminals had nothing to do with the individual at all in fact it had everything to do with who they knew so their social network was the biggest predictor of whether they would go on to become a recruiter or not. And I guess it was the intuition or, or the insight that the machine gave us that said, stop looking at the individual. There's other factors here, like who that person knows that is the most important. And often when we look at forecasting, we look at individuals all the time and perhaps miss, miss the things yeah. that other things can pick up, like, um, like a machine, which is um, it's actually nothing to do with the individual. As far as a predictive power is concerned in this case, it was... Um, their colleagues, their associates. And that feels to me the difference between a basic regression and a machine learning approach. And I just appreciate your insight and uh, comment in relation to that, Andres. Partially, yes. Oh, what's happening? We're getting echo. Um, uh, so one thing I would say is at the end of the day, what you end up doing is you take your variables, you have to code them, and you have to pick the variables, right? There's a degree to which you can just take everything and throw into it. But there will be a degree of human judgment in this stuff. Somebody has to code that stuff. Somebody has to extract the data. For instance, in my the patrol model I showed you, I extracted weather and temperature. Turns out those weren't significant. Turns out I could have ignored those. Seasonality did the trick just fine. But that was because I thought, well, that's probably important. I should go get the data. And turns out, helpfully, in London, there's open data sources, and I could put it out there. And that is always one of the challenges around statistics and machine learning. It relies upon the fact that data being there. So somebody needs to go bring all those data sets together into one thing, into one big data set. So you can say, look, for every row, here is all the data we have. Pick out what's important. Essentially, that's kind of what it comes down to. Um, 
and different methods will take it differently. But and so the, there, yes, there is a degree to which letting the machine pick what's important versus letting the human pick what's important. And there is always cost and benefits to that. But I do think it's also worth noting that there will always be a fair bit of human decision making because you have to pick the data and you have to give it to the model and the model. And you, there was a, a lot actually decision around how you chop and change that data. So for instance, when I forgot the, when you have time, you can put time linearly, right? So you can say, let's say that we put a time variable starting at seven that goes up to 10 p.m. And we assume that, and we assume that happens linearly over time. Or you can put time as a, as categorical variables. So you could have time as early's, late's, and nights. And that enables your model to be a little bit more specific because it doesn't think there's a specific interaction. So there's lots of decisions around how a data scientist categorizes, chooses, aggregates their data that impacts the model that are really important and are sometimes glossed over and are nearly as important as a methodology. And part of the reason why data science is now a thing is because we've recognized that those those decisions around data that aren't statistical, really, there's something about how you think about data and how you aggregate and how you collect it are also actually really scientific and actually really complicated and can have a real impact on your final model. So yeah, I, I, yeah, there is, there is loads of things we should look at. Things like machine learning and big data approaches let you pick out things you definitely couldn't pick out with a bit of, with sometimes simple statistics and let you identify multiple correlates. Also, surprisingly, sometimes you can do that not too badly with simpler models as well. So, yeah. Great. And just a couple more questions coming in, and I'm going to add one of my own as well. Um, there's a very famous book called Weapons of Mass Destruction, if you remember it, which is a Google data scientist who came out and, and spoke about um, how algorithms can be unfair. Um, there's also quite a lot of research in relation to clinical versus actuarial forecasting. And by clinical, I mean uh, professional expertise. You and I as cops go, I think that person may offend or this may be the hotspot. Actuarial, what does the data tell us? The data science approach. And in all the evidence I've read, the data science approach, the, the actuarial approach, as far as accuracy is concerned, beats um, clinical expertise. Um, and of course, you have to combine the two. There's a lot of concern out there, and I'm going to ask you to respond reasonably quickly because um, I want to ask you the other two questions. But a lot of concern around there, around algorithms. Um, my normal pushback to that is, okay, well, we cannot use them, but then we'll just use human intuition, which, by the way, is a lot less accurate. Uh, have you got a comment on that? Yes, absolutely true on both. So the one thing I'd first say is, to me, policing, the core policing question is always, how do we manage risk? That is that is always the key question. That's why we have the national decision model. We spin around it and we go, what is the risk here? How big is it? What are my priorities? What I'm trying to achieve? That, you know, that is not some mad question. That is a question insurance companies and actuaries ask all the time. And they come up with really complicated ways of modeling it and testing it and trying to try different things. And we should be, yeah, we should absolutely be doing the same. And there is, there will always be value in operational experience. You know, you're never going to be able to turn up to an incident and put it into your model and have it happen. That's just not. But you can learn. You can learn from data, and more importantly, data lets you identify your biases, at least in part. There are absolutely risks to algorithms. It happens. You know, the fact is, if you, um, you know, Jeff Jeff Barnes has urban experience from Australia, which frankly make our bias look surprisingly tolerable in terms of you know distribution of population, because you've got certain parts of the population that are just treated in a totally different way. And if those population, if those different groups aren't represented in your data, it will affect your outcome. It always will. But as you say, cops are, you know, let's be honest, police decision making is fantastic in some places, but we know when we test it, it's not always perfect. There's been, I forget who did the research of trying to map police hotspots 
identified by crime analysts using data versus where police officers thought their hotspots were going. And it overlaps partly, but it definitely doesn't overlap totally. But by doing that sort of exercise, we can identify how those things match and we can put a number on that risk and we can try and identify it and start working towards it. So yeah, algorithmic approaches are dangerous. There is no two ways about it. But let's, but at the very least, starting to collect that data and starting to think about what it says is the first step towards fixing those. Yeah, perhaps not more dangerous though than just using intuition. Um, yeah, exactly. and, and the, the point I think I'd like to get across with you is that um, please let's not perpetuate a false dichotomy of geeky nerdy cop versus life experience cop. Um, the two data and experience need to meld together if we're going to improve what we're what we're doing. This university of life versus university is is a wrong avenue to go down, and we need to understand the benefits of experience and understand the benefits of data. Great. Okay. Um, by the way, Andreas and I are just playing with uh, having a go at ten sessions online, talking about data science in a more in-depth fashion. We might release those online. Uh, in the future we're just working it through so quick question here from uh ben terry how have you found using open source software on police networks and then a question here from gavin hales if you can do two at once how should policing and who in policing should communicate this stuff to the public both excellent questions on the topic of running this stuff on police networks yes it has been the last year of my life trying to get this stuff working it's a real challenge um, but it's certainly not insurmountable. And what I tend to find is the problem is decision-making is done that thinks, well, it's a really difficult challenge, so let's not do it. Let's instead buy something off the shelf. That'll be expensive, but will save us money because we won't have to worry about this sort of questions and we can just buy it and make it work. But my instinct is that's probably a false economy because you can make it happen. We've spent a long time in the Met trying to make it happen, but we've got there. I know a lot of other police forces have got there as well. And frankly, we are probably behind the curve. Um, yeah, there are real savings to be made here long term, and there are capability enhancements to be made. So there, are, there is probably something around season, senior decision makers there. When a when you go and try and do R in Python and some fancy company goes, oh, well, you don't need to worry about it because I can sell you this prepackaged product that will cost you £3,000 a year, but you don't need to worry about security questions. You're going to have to worry about the security questions at some point. You just are. So it's it's a really difficult equation to make, but I'd encourage people to do start thinking about it. And it, it, at the end of the day, it has to come down to senior decision makers who understand that. And sadly, in policing, I don't think we've always got that because of the fact that, you know, we, yeah, it, it, it shouldn't be cops' job to worry about R versus some other thing, but it also probably should be. Um, so yeah, hopefully that's useful. It can be done is what it comes down to. It just needs the will and senior push. Uh, on Gavin's question, Yes, absolutely a fair challenge. And I am not totally sure. It is really difficult to communicate this stuff within policing, let alone outside policing. You know, we've tried different ways of doing it. We've tried sort of giving people a one pager. We've tried giving people technical documentation. I, I would love to try and be more open with this stuff in the way academia is and that, you know, maybe we could share code and we could share reports and we could do all those things. It's really difficult because of the fact that this stuff takes time and academia places a lot of effort on things being, you know, spends a lot of effort on things like publishing and policing spends a lot of effort on getting on with the job and saving people's lives. And so it's always really difficult. And there's no obvious stakeholder. I think it's, yeah, I think it has to be a bunch of people. Uh, I I think, you know, the college probably has a job. I think we have a job. 
I think the fact that we can have these discussions at the ACBP is fantastic. Uh, yeah, so I don't think it's a particularly clear question, but essentially it needs to be understandable and there probably needs to be a job for someone. I don't know who it is. Um, so there's another good question that's just come in here. Given the significant role of data science in policing, would you recommend that police recruits be exposed to data science? Not That's everyone can be an Andreas, I think, is, is also yeah. worth saying. I'm going to have to wander into the degree gate quandary now, aren't I? Uh, into the, but, uh, no, yeah. I don't think so. I think um, um, to what extent, I mean, based on my point around the regression, I think everyone who is an inspector and above must know what a regression is. Um, so to what extent should new recruits understand some of the basics of data science, not perhaps being able to do it, being being able to understand the value of it? Yeah, I think we should we should definitely teach the intuition of it. You know, the fact that, that how that cause and effect and that initial chart I showed around identifying the effect of policing is really tricky. And there's other factors and there are tools out there that you can do and you can do them quite interestingly. If you want to go do it, do it again. It will hit not many, but starting to build that intuition and that intellectual numeracy, I think, is really invaluable. Um, yeah. Great. Well, Andreas, I think that's been a really good way to end our series of 10 challenges facing policing. Um, we are data rich now, um, and uh, we are probably insight light. And the answer to being insight rich, I think, is to start adopting some of the methods that you've spoken about. We can always talk about bad data in, bad data out. We're never going to completely get that right. What we can start doing right now is getting some good insight from the data that we do have. But uh, I think it's been a brilliant way to wrap up this season of challenges facing policing. I hope a lot of people listen to this and think, OK, so what are we going to do with our data where we are? Uh, and I really appreciate your time. And remember, please, folks, uh, any feedback to the Society of Evidence-Based Policing about Andreas's talk or anyone else, please contact here as admin at sebp.police.uk. And to the people who've tuned in live um, and who've watched retrospectively, the many thousands of people really enjoyed your company and your time. Thanks for giving us the effort. Um, please, uh, we really value your feedback um, and tell other people about SEBP. Uh, it takes 10 seconds to join off the SEBP website and it's free, run by volunteers who are just trying to make a difference. Thanks ever so much, Andres. Thank you.